Let's turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 4. Lord willing, we will finish our study of this powerful chapter this morning. Our text for this morning is Galatians 4, 21 through 31. And this is one of the more interesting passages in the New Testament. It's where Paul interprets the history of a woman named Hagar, a relatively minor character in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. He interprets it as an allegory of trying to relate to God through your own efforts. Now, Paul wrote Galatians to a group of churches in the southern region of Galatia, one of the regions of the old Roman Empire. He wrote this letter to churches he had planted about two or three years before he wrote the letter. Many of those in these churches had been converted out of Judaism. They had heard Paul's message that Jesus was the Messiah who died for sinners and then three days after being crucified rose again to prove that he could forgive any sinner who turned to him and that he had the power to rid the world of the curse of death. In fact, those events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus happened less than 20 years before this letter was written. These young churches in southern Galatia experienced persecution in the early years of their life as churches, and they were quickly influenced by a hybrid message that basically said, don't be so drastic in turning away from Judaism. You've embraced Jesus, that's good, but keep all the, all the laws that you've lived with. Don't turn away from the law of Moses. Keep it. If you want to be right with God, hold Jesus and the law. And Paul wrote this message to these churches, warning them about the danger of trying to mix error in with the truth, the truth that has the power to save. Now, just before we dig into this challenging text, I want to just say, as simply as I know how, the gospel message that Paul is proclaiming throughout his entire adult life, the gospel message that he was so concerned that the Galatians keep pure, is the message that God the Son became human. And he is God the Father's choice for reigning forever as king on this earth. That is the story of the Bible in a nutshell. God has determined that this whole creation will be ruled over by his chosen king. And that chosen king is Jesus. Yet Jesus, in proving that he had the power to rule all of creation, shocked everyone and chose to die for lawbreakers. He himself was the only perfect law keeper, and yet he decided that he would follow the Father's plan and make a way for any lawbreaker who would turn and follow him to be forgiven of all of our lawbreaking. What a gracious king! And then, after dying in our place, he conquered death to prove that he could save from death any who follow him and that he could rid all of creation of death. 
the only right response to this simple gospel message is trust Jesus. Call out on Jesus. You can do it right where you're at. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. Through your blood, forgive me of all of my sins, my law-breaking. Jesus, I trust you. You are God's chosen king to rule forever on earth. I want you to be my king, my Lord, my shepherd. I commit my life to you. That's what it means to be a Christian. There are a lot of confusing things about what it means to be a Christian. Most churches that claim to be Christian aren't Christian. The simple gospel message that has the power to save you forever says, trust Jesus, God's crucified, risen, and returning king. It's simple. Don't mix it in with religious ritual. You don't need to understand a higher academic level of theology. It's simple. Trust Jesus. That's the message that has the power to save The passage we study today is both simple and complex. I've wanted to start very simple so you understand the big picture of how this this complicated passage fits in. I say it's simple and complex. Getting the main point of today's passage, which we're going to read at the end of the message, getting the main point is really simple. Paul is saying, Christian, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to the slavery of trying to relate to God through your own effort, through your obedience to the Old Testament law. Stop. Don't go back to that kind of slavery. Instead, keep trusting Jesus alone. The message, the central message of this passage is very simple. But how Paul makes this point is rather complicated. In verse 24, if you're in Galatians 4, Look at verse 24. Paul says very simply, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And that's what makes this passage really challenging. Now an allegory refers to a story in which the characters symbolize or represent something else. So very famously, if you remember back to high school English, George Orwell's Animal Farm is an allegory. In that story, the pigs aren't pigs. The pigs represent totalitarian government. Outside the Bible, the most published book in world history is an allegory. It's John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, in which the character Talkative is not a real guy named Talkative. He represents people who think that what they say is very important and they often talk before thinking. Each character represents or symbolizes a personality type. Here Paul says in Galatians 4 that Hagar, a real person, can be allegorically interpreted as representing the way that many people try to relate to God through law-keeping. That's a little complicated, isn't it? So I'm going to take some time to explain it. I'm actually going to take like 75% of the message to lay the foundation for understanding how Paul interprets the Old Testament because let me just say this. I am so thankful that I was trained throughout my teen years and throughout my early 20s by pastors. 
I was trained by pastors and teachers who emphasized careful Bible interpretation. They emphasize how necessary it is to understand the original context of the author. But interestingly, I heard it several times when pastors were explaining Galatians 4, when my pastors, my pastors whose shoulders I stand on, who I deeply appreciate and respect, when it came to Galatians 4, they would often say, what Paul writes here is inspired by God, but don't interpret the Bible like Paul does. He allegorizes it. You never do that. Now, I agree with their caution about just freely interpreting the Bible however you want. But that's not what Paul's doing here. I actually think that when Paul writes Galatians 4, he's understanding the true history of the Bible like every careful reader of the Bible should get it. And that's what I want you to see. Paul is not a crazy interpreter of the Bible. He's a careful interpreter of the Bible. So that's why I'm taking a bit of time to lay the foundation of this history. The first of the three foundations for background that I want you to see is Abraham, or his original name, Abram, before God changed his name. I want you to remember the significance of Abram in world history. You're in Galatians, turn all the way back to the first pages of the Bible. The first page of the Bible describes God's very good creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and he declared it very good. And then God entrusted the very first humans, Adam and Eve, with administration over creation that would lead all of creation to keep on experiencing God's deeper and deeper blessing. But as the second or third page of the Bible indicates, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against their good creator, and they subjected all of God's good creation to the curse. And yet, even as God meted out the curse on creation, he promised to eventually send, this is in Genesis 3.15, he promised to eventually send a human, a descendant of Eve, who would bring an end to the curse and restore blessing to creation. That's how God's story of history begins. The next couple chapters, if you flip over to Genesis 5, one of the things that you might notice is the last significant portion of that chapter is a genealogy. And if you flip over to Genesis 11 you'll find that the central portion of that chapter is a genealogy. Now, these are interesting genealogies. They're technically considered chrono-genealogies because they're not only tracking generations, they're also tracking time. They trace, chapters 5 and 11, they trace 19 generations of humanity down to, if you look at essentially the last verses of chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, they track them down to a family of a man who lived in Ur, a family that was idolatrous. And the son of Terah is named Abram. Out of nowhere in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God selects Abram to be the man through whom his blessings 
are going to be restored to all peoples on earth. Look at Genesis 12.3. He says to Abram, In you, or through your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Creation's curse will be overthrown. Blessing will be restored to all nations universally through a man out of an idolatrous family in Ur. That's modern-day Iraq. God called him to travel out of that land of Ur into what is now modern-day Israel. And if you fast-forward in the story massively, we understand that the reason Abram, from his offspring, all blessings are going to be restored throughout, throughout the world, and why God calls him to go in Jerusalem, in Abram's day it was Mount Moriah, where he nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. The reason God wants that man and his descendants to live in that land is because it's through his offspring in that land that blessings are going to be restored to the earth. Namely, through Jesus dying right outside of Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. It's through Abram's offspring, Jesus, through his crucifixion and resurrection that God is powerfully going to send blessings to all peoples on earth and promise the inheritance to any who would follow Jesus. According to Genesis 1 through 15, Abram is significant in human history because God's promise to end the curse and bless all nations will come through his offspring in the land to which God called him. Don't forget the foundation of world history. Now, interestingly, this moves us into the second facet of the background. In order for Abram to have offspring that would bless all peoples on earth, Abram and his wife Sarah had to have a child. And yet, Scripture says they were barren, they were infertile. In Genesis 15, God reiterated his promise. I'm reading Genesis 15:4. It will be, Abram, through your very own son that the reward, the inheritance, would be given to, to the earth. That chapter, Genesis 15, very famously, Genesis 15, 6, records that Abram decisively trusted God, that God was going to do what God said and give this world-blessing offspring. Abram believed God, and it says in verse 6, God credited it to him as righteousness. So Abram was personally and eternally reconciled to God. But look at the next chapter. Genesis 16 records what happened 11 years later, 11 years after God had first promised to Abram that his blessing would come to all nations. Genesis 16 describes basically how Abram took matters into his own hands. So the first facet of understanding what Paul does in Galatians 4 is you've got to understand who Abram was, why he's significant. The second thing you've got to do is you've got to remember the time when Abram stopped trusting God and took matters into his own hands. The first verses of Genesis 16 record that Abram's wife, Sarai, who was unable to conceive, had an Egyptian servant. That servant's name was Hagar, 
And when Abram was 86, Sarai told Abram to have a child with Hagar. This child, in the day, would legally be Abram's child. Abram should have said, Sarai, let's keep trusting God's promise. That's all he should have done. We need to keep trusting God. Instead, he foolishly agreed to the plan. Hagar conceived and gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Anyone who reads this story carefully should say something like, this is what happens when you don't trust God and you take matters into your own hands. Interestingly, the Islamic world today claims to be descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. We're going to come back to this matter. But Paul is going to powerfully explain to the Galatians, get this, that non-Christian Jews are the true children of Hagar. His concern is not about Ishmael's physical descendants, but about the people who don't trust God and they take being right with God into their own hands. Who are the true children of Hagar and Ishmael? It's the Judaizers, the people who are coming to the Galatians saying, Jesus isn't enough. You need to keep the law. Wow. So Hagar had Abram's son Ishmael, and Sarai, in a jealous rage, ordered Abram to expel Hagar and Ishmael from their home. That happens in Genesis 16, 4 through 6. It seems that this expulsion was temporary. The decisive expulsion came a few years later. The next chapters in Genesis are where God reassures Abram and Sarai, now in their 90s, that they themselves are going to miraculously conceive and bear a son. And God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah to emphasize that it is they themselves, the people who bear these names, that will be the ones through whom the promised blessing to all nations comes. That's why Abraham's name now means the father of multitudes, not just great father, but father of multitudes. And Sarah means royal princess. In Genesis 17, 17, (laughs) Abraham laughed when God promised again that they would have a son. Sarah does it in chapter 18. And yet, God reasserted to them. This is Genesis 17, 19. No, I am not saying that Ishmael is going to be the one through whom the promised blessing comes. He might be a legal son, but he's not the one I promised. God says, no, Your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. (laughs) You're going to call his name laughter because that's what you think of my promises. And God went on to specify that although he would definitely take care of Ishmael, God's promised inheritance to restore blessing to all nations would come through laughter. Isaac. Wow. Jump to Genesis 21. 
Genesis 21 records the miraculous conception and birth of a son to aged Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is 100 years old, and they name the boy Isaac, or laughter. It's a clear double meaning. They are just filled with ecstatic joy. And everyone who hears the story is going to say, you mean God did this to a couple that old? No way. His name is clearly a double meaning. Anyone who looks at Ishmael should say, that's what happens when you take matters into your own hands. And anyone who looks at Isaac should say, this is what happens when we stop trying to take matters into our own hands and let God just be faithful to his promise. See, Paul's a careful reader of the Bible. Genesis 21, 8 to 9, records that one year later after Isaac's birth, Sarah couldn't tolerate the presence of Hagar and Ishmael in their home any longer. And in verse 10, Sarah tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. That phrase is going to be quoted in today's passage in Galatians. And God, at that moment, assured Abraham again, I will take care of Ishmael, but I want you to know that my promises to restore blessing to all peoples on earth are going to come through your son, Isaac. The second foundation layer for understanding today's passage goes something like this. According to Genesis 16 through 22, God's promised blessing to all nations will not come through Abram's son, Ishmael, his son through Hagar. Ishmael was born when Abraham failed to trust God and attempted to bring about God's promises through his own effort. No, God's promises to restore blessing to all of creation are going to come through the miraculous son, the son of promise, Isaac. The son whom Abraham could do nothing to produce except simply trust God. Hmm. So just before we take this third step of background, I want to make the point that Paul is a really good reader of the Old Testament. If you understand history, you understand that Ishmael is the son who comes about not by trusting God, but by trying to bring God's promises to pass through your own effort. And in contrast, Isaac is the son through whom God's promised blessings would come. And Abraham and Sarah could do nothing. They could add nothing of their efforts to make God fulfill his promises. God had to do it all. They had to trust God and not try to earn it. The third facet of history that's critical to understand before we can understand what Paul does in Galatians 4 is you need to remember the expectation that Israel as a nation would fail miserably in their obedience to the law. And this was an expectation when God gave them the law. This is the final critical layer of Old Testament background to understand our text in Galatians. So we turn from Genesis 22 to Exodus 19. Flip over to Exodus 19, it's about 50 pages, but it's about 500 years. 
And simply put, the promised offspring of Abraham who is going to bring blessing to all peoples on earth is going to come through Isaac. And then it's going to come through Isaac's son Jacob. It's then going to come through Jacob's son Judah. Judah and all his brothers, along with their father, move the family down. God does this providentially. It's the story of Joseph. They move down to Egypt to avoid famine, to avoid extinction, to avoid implosion for their immorality. This is a massively dysfunctional family. And in Egypt, over a few centuries, the Egyptians begin to enslave the descendants of Jacob, now called the nation Israel. God powerfully, through the leadership of a man named Moses, brings the Israelites out of Egypt via the Red Sea crossing. Now this, the descendants of Jacob, several hundred years later, are a few million strong. And before entering this promised land where God's blessings are going to return to earth, before entering the land, God has Moses stop the entire nation around Mount Sinai and he enters into the covenant with them, the Mosaic covenant, the law, the old covenant, all terms for the same thing. It's described in Exodus 19. Three months after the miraculous exodus from Egypt, they encamp around the base of this mountain and God says, if you obey the terms of my covenant, then you will mediate my blessings to all peoples on earth. There, this is Exodus 19.8, the people promise to obey God. Now again, let's do a quick fast forward. Rest of the Old Testament. The whole nation is going to suffer the consequences of repeatedly and treacherously breaking this covenant generation after generation. The nation would be eventually decimated by foreigners and the remnants in Israel would all be deported to Babylon. And we know from the New Testament that there is only one Israelite ever who obeyed the terms of this covenant and became the mediator of God's blessings to all peoples on earth. And that is Jesus. Keep that in mind. Let's turn to De Deuteronomy 29. Few more books over. We're actually turning about 150 pages ahead in my Bible. Deuteronomy 29. Even though we're turning 150 pages ahead, this time we're only turning a couple decades ahead. Only about 40 years. See, the people stopped at Sinai and entered into a covenant with God. And it wasn't very long after that that the people miserably failed to trust God. And God said, this generation isn't going into the promised land. It's going to be the next generation that does. And so at the very end of his life, Moses leads the people in a second entering into of the law. That's what deuteronomos means, the second entering into of the law. They enter it in, into it a second time in Deuteronomy. They agree, we're going to obey the covenant that the previous generation didn't. And here in Deuteronomy 29, look at verse 20. Moses expects that the curses written in this book are going to settle upon all the people because they're going to persist in breaking his law and keeping on being idolaters. Look at Deuteronomy 29, 23. The whole nation, Moses says, 
is going to be overthrown like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown. Look at verse 28. Deuteronomy 29, 28. The nation of Israel is going to be uprooted from their land and the Lord is going to cast them into another land. And yet, look at Deuteronomy 30. It's after the people face the curses for breaking the law, after they've been driven into a foreign land, Look at Deuteronomy 36, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God, after you've been kicked out of the land for disobeying the old covenant, after that, the Lord your God is going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Get the message of Deuteronomy 29 and 30. You've got to get it. It's after the nation had promised to obey God's law at Mount Sinai. It's after the nation had promised again in Deuteronomy, yes, we're going to keep, keep the law. It's before Israel ever entered the land now called Israel. That God and Moses knew that the people wouldn't keep the covenant. The people needed something more than physical circumcision. In order to be devoted to God, God had to do something to their hearts, not just something to their bodies. God would somehow have to do surgery to their hearts. And according to God and Moses, this surgery would happen in mass only after the people had been exiled to Babylon and regathered back to their land. Wow. Now, just a little aside here. If you ever take a seminary course in Old Testament history, for about the past 300 years, the fact of Deuteronomy 29 and 30 in the Old Testament, as early as it is, has led most critical scholars, that means they don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God, to accused Deuteronomy of not being written by Moses, but being written a thousand years later after exile because of these promises. Because God laid it out so clearly saying, let me tell you, you're not going to obey the law. You're going to face the curses of the law. You're going to get kicked out of your land into a foreign land. And it's only after that that I'm going to bring you back and do major surgery to your hearts to circumcise your hearts so that you will be devoted to the Lord. In a word, God would rescue his people from their law-breaking hearts when Jesus came. The whole Old Testament is driving at it. For 2,000 years, God wanted Abraham and all the Israelites after him to be physically circumcised as a way of saying, God's going to do something with our offspring. Through our offspring, God is somehow going to end the curse and restore blessing to all creation. Somehow, through Abram's offspring, God is going to fix the problem of the human heart. And once the offspring came, circumcision was no longer necessary. Jesus is here. The long-awaited, promised offspring is here. Physical circumcision is no longer necessary because the one who can do surgery to our hearts has come. 
This third foundation is critical. God's promised blessing, according to the law, God's promised blessing to all nations will come only after the whole nation of Israel had failed to obey God's law. Only then would God begin in mass to miraculously change people's hearts so that they'd love and obey him. Now, if you have those three layers in place, those three foundational layers in place, you're ready to understand Galatians 4. These Jews, many of the Galatians, were converted Jews. They would have understood all of this history. They would have known the law very well from childhood. Paul assumes that they know this history. To understand Galatians 4, you have to understand these three foundational layers of history. And now we're ready to read our passage. And just so you know, I'm nearing the end of my message, okay? Galatians 4.21. Paul says to the Galatians who are thinking about mixing law in with the, the faith in the gospel. Tell me, you who desire to live under the law, don't you listen to the law? He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. For it's written in Genesis that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. That means according to human effort. While the son of the free woman was born through promise, through a divine miracle. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, Hagar and Sarah, are like the two covenants the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, to the Jews who reject Jesus. For she's in slavery to the law with all of her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. In other words, those who are the true children of Abraham, the children who are going to inherit all of the promises of blessing restored to creation, those who are the children of promise are those who've been born from above, those who've become citizens of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus, the promised offspring. He's the one who died and rose again for us. We are the true children of promise if we follow Jesus. And then he says, verse 27, for it is written, and here he quotes, you might just highlight this next to verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 54, 1. The verse before talks about the suffering servant, Jesus, who would die bearing the punishment of many and justify people of all nations. Here he quotes the next verse, Isaiah 54, 1. It's a prophecy that the fruitless nation of Israel is actually going to bring God's blessing to the Gentiles through the suffering servant. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. God's telling Israel, the fruitless nation, to rejoice because somehow he's still going to make good on his promises. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. 
for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, I just marvel. <laughs> there, there was absolutely no design of mine in today's order of service. This is amazing that Galatians 4 fell on the day that we're reading Psalm 113.9. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Just praise God for his providence. Verse 28, Galatians 4.28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. He's saying, basically, in the Galatian region, many of the non-Christian Jews are persecuting those Jews who became Christians. Verse 30, but what does the Scripture say about how you handle this persecution? Quote, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In other words, don't compromise with the people who are persecuting you. Have nothing to do with what they're saying to you. That's Paul's message. You can see again that the main point of Galatians 4 is don't return to the slavery of trying to earn a relationship with God through your own works. Just keep on trusting the promised offspring, Jesus. He's the one God miraculously provided. Keep trusting him. That's where the promised blessing is found. Powerful, powerful passage. And I end with four applications. The first is this. Christian, if you have fallen into a lifestyle of trying to earn God's promised salvation through your efforts again, get back up and trust Christ alone. At the heart of this passage is a flawed hero. And I am so, so thankful for this. Aren't you thankful the people in whom God chooses to work throughout the Bible have problems? I'm thankful that the Bible's honest about them. And I'm thankful because if there's hope for a guy like Abraham, there's hope for me. In addressing the Galatian Christians, Paul must have been hugely encouraged by Abraham's flawed example. We read Genesis 15, 6. It's, it's chapter 15. Abram hears the promise from God again, and he believes, decisively, heroically believes. And it says, and God credits him as righteous because Abram believed God's word, his promise. And then the very next chapter, he tragically failed to keep trusting God. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to devise my own way of bringing about God's promises. Christians, it's easy to be like Abraham. Someone who trusts God and then falls back into thinking you got to do it yourself. You just got to work harder. You got to do better. You got to be more religious. You got to study harder. You want to see results. Bring results about. Stop going the way you've been trying for years and switch it up. Oh. Christians, 
particularly those who struggle with addiction, which all of us do in many ways, isn't it so easy to drift into our thinking that my relationship with God is contingent on my abstinence rather than on Jesus? Our relationship with God, our permanent expectation that we are going to inherit all of the promises is not based on our performance. It's based on Jesus, faith in Jesus, and yet we so quickly slip back into that old way of thinking. I can't even be sure I'm a Christian now because I've, I've given back into my sin. No. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep trusting to Jesus. If you have fallen back into performance-based thinking, then hear the proverb, a just person falls seven times and gets back up. That's the life of Abraham. That should be the life of every Christian who follows the faith of Abraham. Second, Christian rejoice that God chose to forever bless someone as desolate as you through the miracle of the new birth. I base this on verse 27 where Paul quotes Isaiah 54. The story of God's salvation is this. God takes a nation that's fruitless and makes it bear fruit. He takes a couple like Abraham and Sarah who can't bear children. And he makes them bear children. That's what God does in every one of our lives who's come to him through Jesus. He takes people who are barren and fruitless and powerless to change ourselves and he sets his love on us and he sends his servant to die for our forgiveness and then he sends his spirit to our hearts to open our eyes to Jesus so that we turn away from our sins and from our good works and we say, Jesus, all I need is you to be right with God forever. That's worth rejoicing over. That's worth singing over. We whose lives naturally are just barren and fruitless and powerless can rejoice because God in his grace set his love on us. Wow. Third, Christians, stop trying to be accepted by the culture that's so opposed to your Savior. This is in the last few verses of today's passage. Just like there was inevitable conflict between Ishmael and Isaac in Abraham's household, there is inevitable conflict in this world between those who follow the promised son, Jesus, and those who don't. The conflict centers on Jesus. We live in a culture that can't tolerate Jesus' authority. Our culture can't tolerate that Jesus is the only way to God. Our culture can't tolerate Jesus' teaching on human sinfulness and the inability of people to save themselves. Our culture can't tolerate Jesus' teaching on marriage and so on. Christians, we are so often tempted to make our Christianity, our faith, more palatable, more acceptable to our culture. We're so prone to say, I believe in Jesus, but the Jesus I believe in isn't really bothered by the sins that are so popular in our culture. He's accepting those. We're so tempted to embrace a faith that's deconstructed, big term, 
but it's very popular, culturally popular, to deconstruct your Christianity. And essentially then you pick and choose what teachings of the Bible matter today. Many of them don't. Because not all those things are inspired. We have to deconstruct our faith and we have to determine what nuggets in there are true and what we can throw away. No. Let's simply trust Jesus. Let's simply trust that Jesus, the promised Son, has come, been crucified, risen again, and He is returning, and let's keep our eyes fixed on Him. Fourth and finally, Christian, breathe the air of freedom. The freedom that's given to you by Jesus. This is what so wonderful and winsome about the way Paul writes. He keeps saying, don't go back to slavery. Chapter 6, verse 1, he's going to say, enjoy the freedom that you've been given in Christ. It's, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm in your freedom and don't go back to the slavery. That's what it's like to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not like this. What do I have to do so that I don't get bopped on the head? That's not what it's like to follow Christ. What it's like to follow Christ is free. I'm never going to stand judgment before my Creator who knows everything I've ever thought and done. I'm never going to stand judgment as a guilty sinner because Jesus freed me from it. Why would I ever go back to trying to be good enough? I'm free. And following Jesus means I'm free from worry. Psalm 46 says, the governments rise and fall. 2024 is shaping up to be a big political year, right? The oceans can crash into the mountains and all of them be driven into the sea. But if you know the God of Jacob, be still. You know God. What do you have to fear? You're free from fear now. You're free from the fear of death because your Lord has risen from the dead. You're free. Free from the biggest enslavements of life. Guilt. Worry. Dread of the future. Dread of death. You are free. Your Savior has promised you that He has the power to rid this entire creation of the curse and to restore blessing universally to all who follow Him. You're free. Breathe the air of freedom. And don't ever go back to trying to earn your way or to think that Jesus needs some of your works added to it. Breathe the air of freedom that Christ has brought you into.